Ezra chapter 3, uh, that's page 475 in the church Bibles. I don't know if you recognize any of the pictures uh, that are on the screen behind me. Uh, Most of those pictures, in fact all of those pictures, uh, are from a long time ago. Well, at least for me they seem a long time ago. Maybe for some of you they may not seem all that long ago. Uh, Although the other, just before we came up here, I was in a car with uh, a young child and in the car was a, a cassette player And he put the cassette in and it started playing and he was trying to skip the tracks by using the fast forward and he couldn't understand why the tracks weren't going really quickly uh, from the fast forward button. So I had to explain to him what a cassette was and uh, showed him a pencil as well, which also I remember being really useful with a cassette. But we can look back in time uh, with nostalgia at these kind of pictures, and sometimes we can long uh, for those times to be back. I know for me, uh, I certainly uh, only have real nostalgia uh, for the chocolate bars being twice the size that they are now. I look back and I think, oh, they used to be so much bigger than they are at the moment. Um, But sometimes we can look back in our lives in other ways, uh, and we can long for things to be right again as they once were, because now they have gone wrong. And that's where we are in Ezra this evening. God's people want things to be right again because they have gone wrong. Most of those pictures that we saw aren't things that have gone wrong, they're things that have been updated. But I wonder in our lives, do you ever long for things to be right that really have gone wrong. Perhaps a marriage that has kind of fallen apart and you long for it to be right as it should be, even as it once was. Perhaps an attitude that over time has developed and you long to be at a time when that attitude wasn't what it currently is. Perhaps bad habits have crept in and you long for the time where those habits We're no longer. And it's right to think back to what we have lost in order to reclaim what is good. It's not good to be stuck in the past, but it's good to look at the past and to see what was good and to bring it to the present. What about a church that has declined from what it once was for whatever reason? Shouldn't the church look back and see what went wrong and put right what they ought to put right. And it's in that exact position that we find God's people in Ezra chapter 3. We see the Israelites have gone back from exile in Babylon to Israel and they need to get right the worship of God because the wrong way of worshipping was what caused them to go into exile. They had rejected God before. They went into exile in Babylon and now they're coming back and they want to put in place the right worship. They look, and in the passage in Ezra chapter 3, which we'll read in a moment, they're always looking back at what was done before and to lift what was done before, what was right, into the present. In other words, they were doing retro worship. 
that is worship of God that is historically right. Now as we come to chapter 3, we're in a new part of this book of Ezra. If you remember, the book is split into three sections. There is the return from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. And that's chapters 1 and 2, where the decree goes out from Cyrus. And then in chapter 2 is the list of God's people that go back. And we looked at those uh, two chapters over a few weeks. But in chapter 3, we come to the second part of the book, which is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And then the last part of the book, from chapter 7 onwards, is about the restoration of the law in the land. So let's read chapter 3 and see how this chapter shows God's people bringing back worship from the past. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the uh, festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those bought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival in the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites, twenty years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with, and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by King David of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts for joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Amen. Well, the first clue 
to this being about worship actually is the reference to the seventh month in verse 1. The seventh month was the most sacred month of the year for Israel. In the books of Exodus to Numbers, you see the feasts of trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Sacred Assembly, all outlined and prescribed in the seventh month. Just three months after the arrival, the people of God wanted to establish worship and the worship of God in this most holy of months. So this chapter is all about worship, all about worship, all through uh, this chapter. And this chapter is constantly looking back at the past and shows the desire to continue worship of God as it is supposed to be done. And as they looked back, they looked back to the word of God. And in this chapter, you'll see the phrase, as it is written, various times. But also, the site of the altar, the festivals they keep, the songs they sing, the dates of rebuilding, even the place where they get the wood to build with, all hark back to the past, to what was done in God's word. Now, it can be wrong to keep going on about the past. But in Christianity, there is worship that has always been right and always will be right and we should always be aiming to do. So this isn't a community that's stuck in the past and can't move on. This is a community that's taking what is right from their history, right from the past, and putting it in the here and now. And we need to do this too. As we see God's people looking to the past, we see various points about what true worship really is. But tonight we're going to examine just one of those points in verses 1 to 6. And that is that true worship is putting first things first. So tonight we're going to look at this, this one point in chapters one, verses 1 to 6. And then next week we'll look at the other points about true worship from verses 7 to the end. So true worship is putting first things first. There are some definite priorities in this chapter. There are elements of worship that are put in place first before anything else. But all of them are tied to this key phrase found in these first seven verses twice. In accordance with what is written. In accordance with what is written. That that is repeated and is the key part of this passage. The first thing first was the scriptures was the Bible, was the Word of God. It was what God had written in the law of Moses. And right through these six verses, we see the primacy of God's Word. Why should God's Word be primary? It's important that we ask that question and answer that question. The Word of God should be primary because it is the Word of God. Sounds simple, doesn't it? The Word of God is primary because it is the Word of God. But it is the word that our God, whom we are worshipping, gives to us. The Bible was written by human authors with their different styles and personalities, different genres. But it was written by people, but God speaking through them. 
It is God-breathed. We are reading the words that God is speaking to his people. So when we open the Bible, we can say we are reading the word of God. And they had the word of God. They had the books of Moses that they refer to here. They had this word that they could read, they could study, they could look back on, and they could obey. What we have in our Bibles is the words of God whom we worship. And so it must come primary before anything else. So the word of God comes before our experience. The word of God comes before our own ideas. The word of God comes before what culture or even tradition tells us. God's word is primary. And God's people in Ezra chapter 3 believed this, and it showed by the way they followed God's word. All that they did was linked back to what God prescribed in his word. The way they set up the altar, the sacrifices and the festivals that you read about in this passage were all written about in the books of Moses, from Leviticus to Numbers. And later on, uh, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 10, they even sing as prescribed by David, king of Israel. David was one of the authors of the Bible. They even sang according to the word of God. And the reason that that, that people went into exile, they were banished from Israel was because they didn't follow God's word. And so in this passage, as they go back to Israel, there's an obvious and understandable keenness to do what God says, to do exactly what God prescribes, to open the book and to read it and to do what it says because they know that the result of not doing what it says was exile. There was retro-worship. They continually looked back and they did what the Bible says. And for us as God's people, we also have rebelled against God's word. When we open the Bible and read it, we can see things that we have rejected and said no to. We're not going to do that. We've sinned, which is why we need salvation, which is why we need Jesus. And we'll see that shortly. But now, as God's people, there should be a keenness in our own lives to do what God says, to put God's word as primary in our own lives. Now, I'm sure most of you in this room would agree with me when I say to you that all that we do should be according to what is written in the Bible. When I say we should do what the Bible says, most would probably say, Amen, that's right, Steve, that's true. But does your life show what you are assenting when you say, yes, I believe in the word of God? Are you reading God's word each day? Or is your Bible gathering dust underneath OK Magazine or the sports page of the newspaper? Are you not just skim reading the Bible, but really getting into it and trying to understand what it's saying? And there's lots of resources that we have that can help you to understand what the Bible is saying. Does it have primacy of place in the decisions that you make in your life. Oh, it's easy to say that, yes, I believe what the Bible says is true. It's easy to say, yes, it's the first and most important uh, aspect of my life. But it's quite another thing to say that when 
you want to click on that website or speak that word of gossip or do that act of selfishness, does God's word take primary place at those times as well? One of the books that influenced me when I was uh, a a younger Christian was a book uh, by Charles Sheldon called In His Steps. And In His Steps is the book where you, you get the phrase, what would Jesus do from? Because the pastor of the church issued that challenge to his congregation to really think about, in the decisions they make, what would Jesus do? Now, I I really think it's a good story. The only thing I would say is that we know what Jesus would do. He would do what the Bible says. So the question can almost seem like we're wondering, what would Jesus do? But you don't need to wonder. You just need to read the Bible and do what it says. But the sentiment of the book is, is good, and it's right, because we should be thinking, in the decisions we make in our lives, what does God want me to do? What does his word say? And it should be the primary and most important uh, way of making decisions in our lives. We should be thinking, what does God want me to do? And in the book, there was a radical change in that community, not just of the Christians, but in the community as a whole, when the people of that church did what God wanted them to do. And what a radical difference it would make in our church and in our community if we really put God's word as the primary thing in our lives. If we did what the Bible says, we made decisions according to the word, it would make a massive and a radical difference in the life of us as individuals, as a church, as a community, as a nation, if we would just do what the Bible says. But as well as individuals, what about us as a church? All we do as a church should also have a basis on the word of God. We should also do retro worship as a church. What I mean by that is that there isn't anything that we should be doing that is really any different to what has always been done throughout the church history. Now, styles of music may change. Illustrations for sermons may change. A hundred years ago, even the tape cassette would have been something that was unknown and, and futuristic. Innovative ways of reaching people may change in a specific community or culture. But the fundamentals don't change. The gospel we proclaim the conduct of worship services, the primacy of preaching based on the Bible. These things do not change. As an illustration of this, listen to these words that are on the screen. These were written in 150 AD. And this is what I mean when I say the conduct of worship doesn't change. I don't mean we have to have a a set form of worship, but what I mean is the basic uh, meeting of God's people and, and what we do together doesn't really change. This is written by Justin Martyr in AD 150. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for so long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president instructs us by word of mouth, exhorting us to put these good things into practice. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we have already said, bread and wine mingled with water are bought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability, and the people are sent by saying, Amen. You see, we don't do anything radically different now than was done 2,000 years ago. We worship according to God's word. And all of those things can be found in the Bible. 
in the early church. So if you have an idea that you think will be the next big thing in church history, you know what? It probably isn't. (laughs) But if you have an idea that is according to the word of God, then of course it most certainly should be considered. But also on the flip side of that, if there is something that you do not approve of in the church, something that you think is, is wrong, then you need to be able to show through the scriptures that that is not a right thing to do. Everything that we do should be according to the word. It should be primary, take primary place. And the scripture is, is under attack in our days and we must fight to keep God's word as primary in our church for all matters of faith and practice. So the first big priority is the word of God itself. But even within the word of God, the people show that there are priorities in that too. This passage shows us that there are priorities in God's word. As we look at how they followed God's word, I want us to see in this passage two things that they put first. And the first one is found in verse 1. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They assembled in unity. On the most holy of months, this passage tells us that the people, as soon as they had settled down in their homes, the first thing they did was get together as one in Jerusalem to worship. The worship of God together as one has a primary place in Scripture. They met together in order to follow God's word together. Whatever the people did, according to the word, was done as a group. And God tells us today to assemble together as one so that we can worship him as one. And it's one of the basics of the Christian faith. One of the the most basic things we know we ought to do as Christians is to meet together with God's people. Now, there may be some Christians that you meet, and I've met them, that say, well, I don't need to go to church in order to be a Christian. I don't need to meet with God's people. Well, I say, I agree. I don't think you need to be at church in order to become a Christian. But when you meet someone that says that they can worship as a lone ranger on their own, first of all, say, where in the Bible does it say that? And then secondly, say to them, well, can you show me an example of someone in the scripture that was a lone ranger that didn't worship with other people? And the answer to both those questions is the Bible never tells us that we should worship uh, outside of a community. And there isn't anyone in the Bible that really was a lone ranger that never met with God's people when they could. God tells us to meet together as one, to worship him. But in order to meet together, we must ensure that the Christians we meet with also have put first things first too. There are lots of churches we could go to, but they're not the ones we should settle in. We must meet together around the word of God, putting first things first in all that we do. So they met together to hear and obey God's word. But also the other priority we see in this passage is the priority of atonement. The priority of atonement. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel 
to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifice. Interesting to note, they didn't build the temple and then the altar. They built the altar and then the temple, which tells us that before anything else was built, they made a way of offering sacrifice. They made a way of atonement. Sacrifices in the Old Testament were made for thanksgiving, for devotion, but also for sin. And if there was no altar, there was no sacrifice. And if there was no sacrifice, there was no atonement. What does atonement mean? Well, the definition is in the word itself. It's at one It means that sin is paid for so that we can be in relationship with God. Building the altar was putting first things first because the first thing was that they needed to be in a relationship with God. The importance of being in relationship with God is shown in that they knew they needed to make atonement. And notice how they built it in verse 2. In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So how can we be in relationship with God? How, how, how we can be in that relationship is, is the primary purpose of God revealing himself in Scripture. If God didn't want us to know him, he wouldn't have revealed himself to us in his word. God's word says that we can be in relationship with him through the atonement. And in the Old Testament, those sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus. How is it that we can be in relationship with God? Through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the atonement that he made. Jesus died on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. He was the sacrifice that was the last one that was ever needed. He paid for our sin and credits us with his righteousness so that we can be in relationship with God. So when we ask for our sins to be forgiven because we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and is risen from the dead, we have relationship with God because he has made atonement. And the Bible teaches substitutionary atonement. That means that Jesus died as our substitute. Those sacrifices that were made at the altar were made as substitutes taking the place of the sinner. And so Jesus died as our substitute. And that's a key message of Scripture. Some of the young people that we have in our church are going off to university uh, in the summer. When you look for a church, make sure you find one that believes the Bible to be true in everything and puts it first, and that they believe this about the atonement. Make sure that when you assemble with God's people, you meet together with people that believe the Bible is primary, and they believe in substitutionary atonement. Because both of these things are under attack in our day, from within and without the church. All of us 
need to make sure that we know what we believe about the Bible. And we need to know what we believe about the atonement. Because they are under attack. And there are lots of good resources that we can look at to help us understand these things, not least of which is coming to Table Talk, where we're hearing more about the Word of God, the Bible. But notice in this passage as well that there were some important things that came after the first things. Verse 4 begins with the words, then. Then. In other words, after the altar. Then they continued to follow God's word according to the festivals and other offerings. First of all, we read about the feast or festival of tabernacles, which is prescribed in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29. This feast of tabernacles was an appropriate feast for them to start with because the feast of tabernacles celebrates the time when they were in the wilderness, wandering around, going uh, into the promised land, living in tents. And they had just come from another wilderness, another time outside of the promised land, and they came back. It was a good festival to start with. But look then at verse 5. It says, after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those bought as freewill offerings to the Lord. Now again, these things are not unimportant. But you can't make burnt offerings without the altar. But once the altar was built, they were keen to follow the Lord. They put the first things first. Some of you may, have, uh, may know what this image means on the screen. It's the phrase that says, don't put the cart before the horse. In other words, it's a phrase that means you put the first things first. What the Israelites did after building the altar was not after the altar because they were not important. Because God doesn't give instructions that aren't important. God doesn't give us his word that we can take it or leave it after the bits that we think are most important. But unless you have responded to the cross, unless you have become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, trying to keep the commands of scripture and trying to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, won't do you any eternal good. That's putting the cart before the horse. That's why the atonement came first. They had to have sin dealt with before they could celebrate the festivals. And the problem that many people face today is that they want all the festivals. They want the festivals done right. We've got to have Christmas celebrated just the right way is a good example. There's got to be candles at the carol service or it's just not right. But they haven't had the atonement. They want the Sermon on the Mount. They want morals and good behavior. Some even want the lovely language of Scripture, but they don't want to admit that they're sinners and confess it to God and ask him for forgiveness and believe that Jesus paid for sin, rose again, and is coming back to judge. Those are the first things. Candles at Christmas is putting the cart before the horse. What the Bible says is always good. Having a marriage that is strong is good. Knowledge of the Bible is really good. Not getting drunk is good, but it's not going to earn you eternal life. But once we are believers and following Jesus, well then, marital fidelity is vital. Growth in the knowledge of God is key. Sobriety and not getting drunk is all marks of obedience to the God who has forgiven our sins. 
They are all vitally important for our faith. And without growth in obedience to God, you have to wonder whether you really are God's child. But don't put the cart before the horse. Make sure that you have had sin forgiven, that you believe what Christ has done on the cross. But in addition to this, I would also encourage you not to leave the cart behind. Because Christians should be obedient to all of what God's word says. They kept these festivals, not because they were just a nice thing to do, but because God had told them to keep the festivals. There was a keenness to follow God's word. And as Christians, we too should be keen to do what God has called us to do in the scriptures. And I would also say that we know what we really need to know about the scriptures, about what God says. You know, it it takes a lot of study, perhaps, to understand what the Feast of Tabernacles was or what these new moon sacrifices are. But for us, we know what we really ought to do as God's people in terms of obedience. It doesn't take a lot of study to work out what the Bible says about sex or what the Bible says about drunkenness or what the Bible says about giving or a whole host of other things. We, We know what God's word says. The struggle isn't understanding what it says, it's doing what it says, isn't it? So don't leave the cart behind. We need to obey, but let's make sure that we're not trusting in our obedience to save us. It's easy to get into debates about obscure passages of scripture when we're blatantly ignoring the bits of the Bible that we know are clear. So let's focus on obeying what God says and putting that first. There's so much that we can credit the people of God with in this passage. It's wonderful to see them putting uh, God first. But we also see as we come to the end of this passage that it wasn't easy for them. Putting first things first is hard. And we see that there is a pain in putting first things first. The enemy loves it when individuals and churches get knocked off track when the first things become the second things and the second things become the first things. And one way the enemy does this is to make it painful for us to put the first things first. And we see this happening twice in this passage. First of all, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. There was opposition to the people. And we'll see more of that in chapter 4. And this came in two different forms. First of all, the opposition came from existing inhabitants. In the book of Jeremiah, if you want to take this as a reference, you can, chapter 41 and verse 5, we read that even after Jerusalem fell, people came to the site of the temple and offered sacrifices. So there was a place for sacrifice to be made that people were making it. And here, the people changed. They built, they built on that or around that, and it would have changed the way that worship had been done for 50 years or so. So a lot of commentators say that it was the people that were already there that opposed changing what was going on already. But most certainly, from chapter 4, we know that they had trouble from the people around them as well, not just in Jerusalem, but around them. People opposed God's people coming and building the temple. 
And from within and without, there are potential threats to putting the first things first. And there is always going to be opposition to us following God's word. Outside of the church, there is legislation that says that we can't say or do certain biblical truths, for example. Inside the church, Christians or people that say they're Christians aren't happy, perhaps, with certain teachings that are given from the pulpit. For some of us, our families can be most dreadfully upset if we don't put God first in our lives. But despite their fear, they put God first. They put the first things first. People pleasers don't end up putting first things first. If you want to please everybody around you, then you're not going to put first things first and you will end up compromising. I remember that when we moved to Pelsall, we found it so very difficult because of our, fam- our family and friends were opposed to us going. It was really hard, really hard. When our family is against us and our friends are against us and they don't want us to follow what God wants, it is really, really hard. But we must put first things first, even when it upsets those closest to us. We read that even in the passage of scripture this morning. But if God's word is primary, we put first things first, even if it upsets people. So some of us perhaps need to let go of our reputation and be willing to take mockery at school or at work. Some of us need to accept that people are going to be upset with us for following God's word. Putting first things first can be very painful. But there's another way that God's, uh, that putting first things first can be painful, and we see that in verse 6. It says in verse 6, On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. They didn't wait until everything was ready before they began to obey the word of God. They didn't have a temple around the altar before they offered sacrifices on the altar. And this can be painful for us because we can, be, uh, we can say to God things like this. I will wait until such and such happens and then I'll start being the person God wants me to be. I appreciated when we went to the Holbrook's men's convention last year Gavin Peacock, the speaker, saying to our young men who were not married, in his talk on marriage, he said to them, you need to be the people that God wants you to be now and not expect to have a, be a magic man of God when you get married. I really appreciate him saying that because it's true, isn't it? We need to be who God wants us to be now. Some people may say, well, I'll, I'll wait till I'm married and then I'll be the man of God I ought to be. You won't be. You've got to be God's man or woman now. Perhaps some of you say, I'll I'll be, uh, I'll obey later, but later never comes. Or I'll start serving God when I have more time. Well, there, there are seasons in life when we are busier than others, but if you aren't prepared to serve in any way now, then you probably won't have the time ever. Or what about the regular commitments to sorting out our prayer lives tomorrow, but then something else happens. Or getting in, I'll get into a good, this good habit or do this thing tomorrow, and, and tomorrow just, just never arrives. 
Or what about uh, serving in the church when I've reached a, a more spiritual level? I'm not quite spiritual enough at the moment. I need to be more spiritual. Well, yes, we all need to be more spiritual. But the best thing we can do is to serve God now with what he has given us. They didn't wait to serve God till they had everything in place and had it perfect so they could serve. They served God with what they had. And that's a message for us as a, as a church body as well, isn't it? Sometimes, in fact all the time, our ministry isn't perfect, is it? We must do what we can with what God has given us, with the resources he's given us. And actually, I, I believe God has blessed us with great resources in our fellowship in many ways. Notice that you know, they, they, they had this seventh month, this most holy of months, but the people couldn't have the Day of Atonement, the biggest day of the seventh month, because the Day of Atonement needed a temple with a holy place for them to go into. But they still did what they could, with what they could, how they could, according to God's word. Sometimes ministry doesn't get off the ground because not everything is in place to make it perfect. Or we can look enviously at other churches and say, well, when we're like that, we'll do this. As long as we have the first things first, we have God's word in place, which enables us to preach the atonement, we have really all that we need. And anything else that adorns that is just a bonus. Don't get worked up when our ministries are not perfect. Because one, it never will be. And two, the complaining makes it more imperfect than it would be if you just got on with the job. Putting first things first can be painful because of other people or because we have to humble ourselves in the hard work of obeying right now. Next week, we'll continue in chapter 3 and see the other elements of true worship. But for tonight, let us pray now and ask God to seal in our hearts what we have heard, that we would put first things first. Let us, let us pray.